Well, if you have a Bible there in front of you, if you want to turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, we're going to look at the last uh, last little paragraph of Mark 15. We're almost at the end of the book. Our sermon text today is Mark 15, verses 40 to 47. And if you're able to do so, please stand for the reading of God's Holy Word today. Mark 15, verses 40 through 47. Give ear to the reading of God's Holy Word. Mark writes, There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself, looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned it from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out from the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. So let's pray and ask his blessing to us that we might understand his word correctly this morning. Heavenly Father, once again we come to you. We know that the entrance of your word brings light. We know that uh, that uh, no one else has the words of life but you, and so we, we come to you and we ask that you would teach us your word this morning, that you would help us to have understanding, move in our hearts by your spirit, that we might understand and believe your word and benefit from it. We pray that you build us up in our most holy faith and that you might convert the lost. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, here in our text, we see uh, the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that on the surface uh, to us might not seem like a very important event. You know, we, 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 as we're going to see, we recite in the Apostles' Creed, uh, you know, once in a while that, that he was buried. And sometimes I bet when we recite that, that probably just goes, you know, your, your eyes kind of glance right over the page and it doesn't really register that, that that's an important detail. But I think we're going to see from our text and a few others uh, that not just the death, the crucifixion and death, and even the resurrection of Christ were important, but his burial is very significant. As short as it was, only those three days, but it's very, it's a lot more significant than you might think. And I, I doubt that many of us give it much thought uh, throughout our, our days. Well, as I already said, the burial of Jesus Christ is included in both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. You know, these are the most... Uh, the oldest, the most ancient, the most well-received, we call them the ecumenical creeds of the faith. They are the, that, that word ecumenical basically means the church, the true church down through the ages, no matter where it has been, no matter what country it has met in, what language it has spoken, uh, has confessed those creeds as containing the summary of the Christian faith. And both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, uh, which dates from the early 4th century, are uh, they, they both confess, or we both confess in them, that the burial of Jesus Christ is an essential part of the true Christian faith. It's an essential part. It's something that if you were to remove it from, from our confession of faith, we'd have something less than Christianity without Christ's burial. 
we have confessed, uh, the church has rather, for, you know, almost 2,000 years, give or take a couple hundred years, that Jesus Christ our Lord was, quote, crucified, died, and was buried. The Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed says simply that he suffered and was buried. So his burial in that tomb that we just read about in our text is, is rather important. Well, not only that, not only the creeds, but the scriptures themselves, more importantly, uh, testify, like our sermon text today, to the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross and was buried. And more than that, the Apostle Paul in the scriptures, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, actually goes so far as to say that the burial of Christ is one of the most important things he taught to the believers at Corinth. Think about that. Now, certainly he taught it because it happened. But he says more than that. He says the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ were, were the most important things he taught. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 4, he, he tells the Corinthians this. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance... He taught them a lot of things, but he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. In other words, what he taught them, he didn't come up with. It was a deposit that he guarded, something he was given to uh, by the Lord. And, and what were those things? He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Not just the death, not just the resurrection, but his burial. Paul includes that as among the things that were of first importance. Now, Paul's ministry in the gospel, as Acts twenty twenty seven, as he says there, his ministry in the gospel as an apostle included teaching what he called the whole counsel of God. There was nothing in God's word that was unimportant to Paul. There should be nothing in God's word, Old or New Testament, that's unimportant to, to us. He tells Timothy in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 that all scripture, all of it, all scripture is what? Breathed out by God or given by inspiration of God. And so he says it's profitable, all scripture is, profitable for what? Teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we might not know why everything that's in the Bible is in the Bible, but it's all the Word of God, and it's all given to us for a reason. It's without any part of Scripture, we are somehow less equipped for every good work. The man of God is not quite complete without the whole Word of God. So Paul, what did Paul do? He preached the Word. He taught the whole counsel of God, uh, because all of God's Word is important. It's all given for our benefit and so all of God's word, even the difficult parts, even the hard to understand parts, are to be preached and taught to God's people. But having said that, nevertheless, Paul saw certain truths of scripture about Jesus Christ as being, as he says in some way, quote, of first importance. Everything matters, but certain things matter more than others. And what, are the, what were those things? They're very specific from that text. Christ died for our sins. Not just that he died. You know, I don't know who, somebody much wiser than me has said years ago, uh, Christ died is history. Christ died is fact. Christ died for our sins. That's doctrine. That's the, that's the importance of his death. Isn't it he just that he died? It's that he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. The second thing Paul says was of first importance was that he was buried. That's what we're going to look at this morning, Lord willing. And third, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with 
the scriptures. So not just his death, not just his burial, his uh, resurrection, but his burial. For some reason, and we hope we're going to see at least part of that reason today, Christ's burial was of first importance. So hopefully, Lord willing, we're going to see at least some of the reasons why that's the case this morning as we go through our text. Well, not only that, not only does this passage teach us of the burial of Christ, but it's also, I think, going to be instructive to us, should be instructive to each of us, uh, our text should be, about the power and the reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think it's all through our text, but it's kind of one of those things that it's right in front of your face, but you don't notice it all the time. Uh, the power and the reach of the gospel of Christ is all through our passage. For in these verses, we see some pretty different kinds of people who, by the grace of God, became followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, I would go so far as to say is we find some very unlikely disciples of Christ in our text, and yet there they are by God's grace. Well, the first thing we're going to look at that Mark mentions in our text is the presence of, of certain women at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In verses 40 to 41, Mark says, There were also women looking on from a distance. Now, the, the phrase looking on, it's really looking closely at. They weren't casual observers. They were looking diligently at what happened. They really were trying to keep an eye on what happened with their Lord. It says, they were looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, Mark says, they followed him and ministered to him. They ministered to Jesus. Uh, And there were also many other uh, women who came up with him to Jerusalem. You know, when you read the Gospels, for good reason, I think, it spends most of the time dealing about, talking about Christ himself, but who are the followers that are mentioned time and time and time and time again? It's the twelve, and some others, but the twelve. You know, eleven of whom became the apostles, but Mark wants us to know that they weren't the only ones that followed Jesus. They weren't the only ones in the upper room in Acts chapter 1. When they were waiting for the gift of the Holy Spirit, there were also many women in that room. Many women followed Christ all the way to his cross and stayed there and watched. Now, Mark mentions Mary Magdalene, another woman named Mary that we don't really know much about, although it gives the names of of two of her sons, Uh, and, and Salome. Now, Salome is believed to be the mother of the sons of Zebedee. That's what... That's what uh, Matthew 27:56 says. It's, it doesn't quote her by name. It doesn't say Salome. It just says Mary Magdalene, the other Mary. How'd you like to be the other Mary? Uh, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now, who were they? Those were James and John. So this Salome is the mother of two of the apostles, two of the 12 of Christ's apostles, and they were there. Uh, now, these women were followers of Jesus, Mark says, and they had been brought to saving faith and converted while Jesus was ministering in Galilee. And they also, they followed him, and they also, he says, ministered to him or served him during his earthly ministry. Now let us notice, I think, here from that, from Mark's words there, that that the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, was well pleased to count these women among his followers and gladly accepted their service to him. Now think about this. Imagine the joy these women must have had uh, in, in knowing that they had served or ministered to the Lord Jesus Christ, to their Savior. They had no doubt that they served Christ. And notice also that Mark adds, uh, there were ma- also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, if Jesus accepted the faithful ministry of, of women during his earthly ministry, 
what reason do any of us have in somehow supposing uh, that our Lord is any less accepting and even desirous of using women, in, in addition to men, to serve him in many ways in his church today. Now, some some may think that because the scriptures, which I believe they do, the scriptures, they reserve the offices in the church. That is elder, that's a pastor, overseer. The offices of elder and deacon, the scriptures reserve those to qualified men. And so sometimes we get the idea that, oh, well, if that's the case, well, women aren't very important. You know, the women are kind of the second-class citizens in the church. Well, that, that's not the case, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't think that. The scriptures don't teach that. The fact that God reserves those offices for qualified men uh, doesn't mean that the service and ministry of women in the church doesn't matter. Women, many women served Jesus himself during his earthly ministry. J.C. Ryle uh, writes the following. He says, In the New Testament, we generally see women mentioned as a help and assistance to the cause of true religion. Elizabeth, Mary, Martha, Dorcas, Lydia, and the women named by St. Paul to the Romans are all cases in point. I would add Priscilla to that list, Priscilla and Aquila. It seems meant, these things, it seems meant to teach us that women have an important place in the church of Christ, one that ought to be assigned to them and one that they ought to fill. And then he says, there is a great work that women can do for God's glory without being public teachers. Happy is that congregation in which women know this and act upon it. You know, in our day, we have kind of two extreme views uh, in the in the churches. You have people that reject what the Bible teaches about the offices in the church and say, well, we're going to have women pastors. And, and if you don't have women pastors, then they must not be very important. We, we shouldn't be wiser than God. We shouldn't try to, to, to go beyond what the Scripture says. But the other extreme says that well, they can't really do much of anything in the church. And both those extremes are unbiblical, and they are, they are to be rejected. Now, it's beyond the scope of this sermon. Maybe we can talk about it during Sunday school. It's beyond the scope of our text to go into a lot of detail about the many ways that women can and should and do serve the Lord Jesus Christ and his people in the church. Uh, but we can be sure that, that we ought to be joyfully encouraging them to do so. We should encourage all members of the church to serve in various ways, to serve Christ and serve his people. I think to do any less is to, is to dishonor Christ, who himself accepted their service. I think to do less than that is to weaken the church. There's a lot of work to be done. There's always too much work to do and not enough hands to do it. And I think it also to do that, to not do that is to wrongly discourage those whom the Lord is pleased to accept the service from. Now the Lord, you know in the scriptures, the Lord has gifted all believers for service. Everyone. If you are a believer in Christ, if you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of, of God, you have been equipped by His Holy Spirit to serve in some, in some way, whether it be up front, behind the scenes, whatever it might be, we are, are equipped for service, and so all believers should be encouraged to discern and use their gifts for the building up of the body of Christ and the glory of Christ's name. And so I would ask this morning, and many of you I know the answer to this, but are you actively serving uh, others in the body of Christ? You know, what's what's the saying, uh, John F. Kennedy, you know, I won't try to do the accent, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, you know, ask what you can do for your country. Now, I won't say that he was talking about the church there, but, you know, many times we come to the church and our first question and concern, and the church fosters this, frankly, it's not, it's not everybody else's fault, it's the church, it's the pastors and teachers and elders' fault, 
We, we encourage people to think of the church first as what can I get out of this? Now, I hope when you come to church every Lord's Day and, and every other time we have Bible studies, and what, I hope you get a lot out of the worship here. I hope you do. I hope you get a lot out of the Word of God being preached and taught and being discussed among yourselves in Bible studies and groups. Uh, but at the same time, we should also be thinking, what can I do? In what ways, what ways would the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen and ascended Christ, have me to serve in his name, my neighbor, my neighbor next to me in the, in the pew or the, or the chairs in the church? How can I serve in the church and build up the body of Christ in, in love? Well, well, notice also in our text, these particular women, uh, they went so, they didn't just show up. They didn't just follow Jesus and then ditch him when things got, got difficult. They watched closely from a distance. They had to, they had to keep their distance to some degree, but they watched. They watched there as Jesus was crucified. They watched as he died. And this took no small amount of courage on their part. You might remember what happened to the twelve. They deserted him. They abandoned Jesus when he was arrested. And then you had Peter, the one, you know, even if the rest of these guys, I'm paraphrasing, even if the rest of these guys, you know, fall away, not me, if I have to die with you, you know, I'll do it. And then what happens? A little servant girl at the, at the campfire says, hey, aren't you one of them? And he denies Christ three times and then finally abandons him as well. But these women didn't. And I think Scripture is, is commending them for it here. They stayed close enough to watch and as verse 47 says, which is rather important in detail, they were there close enough to see where Jesus was entombed. They saw where Jesus was buried after his death. Now, commentators mention that in, in Jewish society in the first century, uh, the testimony of women was not held in very high regard. In fact, it wasn't valid. Think about that. If you were a Jew in the first century and you were a woman, uh, your testimony in court meant nothing. You couldn't, a man couldn't be convicted of murder based on a woman's testimony, apparently. It, it wasn't worth uh, that much. And yet we find here in the scriptures that the testimony of a few notable women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger and Joseph, Joseph and Salome, their testimony provided some of the most important first-hand witness to the, to the death of Christ and to his resurrection. I think that's something that, that should jump off the page at us. Although we're so used to reading these texts, it doesn't, we don't think about it that much. Now, without their testimony, you know, scoffers, as they always do, uh, they might have the appearance of just cause for suggesting that Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. You know, there are all kinds of things that skeptics and scoffers and unbelievers and atheists say to try to debunk the faith. They say, oh, well, they went to the wrong tomb. Well, what does Mark tell us here? Well, not only does Joseph and, and Nicodemus know where that tomb was, because they're the ones that put him there, these women were watching how? Closely. And in fact, they, in the next chapter, they go to the tomb. They're the first witnesses of the resurrection. They knew exactly what tomb that it was. And so unbelievers and skeptics can't really pull out the wrong tomb idea. Uh, really, it's a ridiculous idea that some have used. Some have actually used that to try to disprove the resurrection, because if you disprove the resurrection, you disprove Christianity. If Jesus is still in the grave, we are wasting our time. We are still in our sins, Paul would say. Now, can there be any doubt that if Jesus Christ had not risen from the dead on the third day, that uh, the enemies of Christ and his gospel would have been very quick to find the correct tomb and produce his corpse for all to see, and the church would have perished in her infancy? 
But the Lord Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, one of the grandest truths of all of Scripture and history. And these women in our text provide some of the most important testimony to that very fact. And by God's grace, their, their testimony is preserved for us even to this day. But notice also in our text, as we've mentioned before, notice the power and reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mary Magdalene. Now, of, of the women mentioned here, she's probably the one that we know the most about, but we don't know that much about her. But, you know, she's probably somebody that if you and I had known her, uh, just like the people in her day, they probably wrote her off as a lost cause. They probably didn't think, you know, well, this is not somebody the Lord is probably going to ever be able to use. She's too far gone. And what does the scripture say in Luke chapter 8, verse 2? It says that Jesus himself had delivered her from, from, from demonic possession. In fact, he notes that, that Jesus had cast seven demons from her. I mean, I know in our day and age, we think there's no such thing. Uh, we're wrong. But, but we, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around what that must have been like. If you would have seen her, you might have been afraid of her. You might have crossed the street to get around walking by her. Uh, who knows what she was acting like when this possession was going on. But uh, we certainly probably would have said, well, too, too late, too far gone for that one. But no. Jesus shows up, heals her, casts these seven demons out from her. And what does she do? She follows him the rest of her days. Some have suggested that she was a prostitute. Uh, scripture does not say that. We do not know that. Uh, that may have been the case. It may not. But wh- whatever the case, she was very far gone, and yet Jesus was pleased to save her wonderfully. Now, we would probably think of someone like her as a lost cause, and yet Jesus had mercy upon her, didn't he? And she followed Christ and even ministered or served him for the rest of her days. And by the grace of God, she has the honor, as the other women do, of being mentioned in the Scriptures uh, not only as his follower, but as a witness to his death, burial, and resurrection. That's a pretty remarkable testimony that she has by God's, by God's grace. And we should, I think, remember and take to heart Paul's words in 1 Timothy 1.15 when he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? To save sinners. And then he says, of whom I am foremost or chief. You know, Paul, Paul, Paul knew better than most of us do, knew, knew better than I do, certainly, that, that if God would save him, you know, is there anybody that God wouldn't save? I mean, as far, humanly speaking, is there anybody that's too far gone, too sinful that God would look at and go, eh? You know, Jesus, I gave Jesus to die for a lot of people's sins, but that one's too far gone. Paul said, I was the one that's too far gone. Right? Jesus came into the world to save sinners, real, actual sinners. Do you know any sinners? Look in the mirror, right? Real, actual sinners, wicked people. Those are the ones Jesus came to save. He came to save all kinds of sinners. Think of a particular sin. You know, we always think of sins that we don't do. Oh, that's so-and-so. Real sinners, all kinds of sinners, even sinners like you and me, Jesus came to seek and to save. What does he say in Luke 5.32? He came... Uh, not to call the righteous, of course there, is, there are none, not to call the righteous, but what? Sinners to repentance. Sinners. Jesus came to save not good people, not righteous people. He came to save sinners. Well, the next person in our passage that we see, he spends most of the time in our text talking about him, is Joseph 
of Arimathea, and I believe he also was a very unlikely disciple of Jesus Christ. Mark says in verse 43 that he was a respected member of the council. Now, that what council? The council, most commentators believe that is being referred to there is the Sanhedrin. Now, if you've read, if you've been following along in the Gospel of Mark, uh, the Sanhedrin, think of it as the Supreme Court in Israel, so to speak. But the Supreme Court, they didn't have a separation of church and state like we seem to have in our country or we act like we're supposed to have. Uh, their Supreme Court dealt with matters of religion and politics because they go together. There's no, you really can't separate those things. They, they, they necessarily have some uh, overlap between those two things. Now, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, a very respected member. We don't know if that means he was high in rank, but he probably was. Now, remember what the Sanhedrin did in the, in the chapters previous to this? They're the ones that plotted Jesus' death. Think, think about that for a minute. They're the ones that cooked up a false trial, brought forth false witnesses to testify against the Lord Jesus Christ, and had the Lord of glory crucified by the hands of wicked men, as, as Peter says in Acts chapter 2. But here you have a member of the Sanhedrin that followed Christ. Think about that. It says there in verse 43 that he was himself looking for the kingdom of God. He was looking forward to the kingdom of God and the coming of the Messiah. And he had been looking to Jesus in faith. We don't know when. We don't know when he was converted. Uh, but here we see him trying to give Jesus a proper burial before the Sabbath, as it wasn't lawful to leave a body hanging on a tree overnight. Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 to 23, it says, uh, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, you know, talking about execution, you know, capital punishment, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, you know, that, that was sometimes how they did it, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. Why? For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. A lot of things you can say from that text. In fact, that text, the New Testament uses as a basis to, to describe why Jesus had to die on a cross. You ever think about that? Why, why wasn't Jesus just killed? He had to die on a cross. Why? Because he took the curse for our sins upon himself. And in fact, the New Testament writers make a habit of calling the, the cross a tree, that he was hung upon a tree. It's a piece of wood. That's why he died on the cross, in particular for our sins. But the body was not to remain on the tree all night. Uh, but you shall bury him the same day. And in this case, it was even more needful. Why? It was the day before the Sabbath. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So what does Joseph do? He went by haste, you know, with haste and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Christ that he might give him that proper burial. Now, John 19.38 says that Joseph, quote, was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, that is. And so this man was a follower of Christ, but at this point, up to this point, he tried to hide it. He tried to kind of keep it on the down low. You know, many of us try to do that. You know, we, we go to our workplace, we go around our other people that we rub shoulders with, and we try to keep that, try to keep that quiet, because, you know, bad things tend to happen when people know that you don't think the same way as uh, everybody else does. And he was no different. As important as he was, maybe that's why he tried to keep it secret. He doesn't want to lose his status, his, his position. And so he tried to keep it a secret, but now what does he do? Kind of hard to keep this a secret. He goes to, to Pilate himself, 
It says in our text, he summoned up the courage or the boldness. All of a sudden, the secret disciple was secret no more. He goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. And that's, that's about as out in the open as you get. He was probably among the group that went to Pilate in the first place. Now, he probably didn't vote for Jesus to be killed, but Pilate probably knew who he was. You know, Pilate wasn't some guy that any old person could walk up to. This man had access to Pilate. And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Christ to give him a proper burial. John 19.39 actually says, remember the, remember the name Nicodemus from John 3, the one that Jesus said, you must be born again? Nicodemus, also a member of the Sanhedrin, helped bury Christ in that tomb. He was also, I mean, two members of the Sanhedrin, the most unlikely followers and disciples of Christ maybe you'll ever come across in Scripture. And look, looky here, Jesus saved them. Now, just as those women mentioned earlier in our text served Christ in his life and provided the world with a testimony about his burial place, even so our brother Joseph of Arimathea served Christ in his death and provided the world with a very important testimony to the veracity, the truthfulness of his death, because skeptics and scoffers also try to say Jesus didn't die. He, he was only mostly dead. Princess Bride fans, right? Uh, he, he just looked dead. He wasn't quite all the way dead. Look at verses 44 to 45. Mark says, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. You know, they say that very often people being crucified would, would last for days. If you can imagine how that would have been. He was surprised to hear that he should already have died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. Remember the centurion in the, the, the verse 39, what does he say? Surely this man was the son of God. When he saw that Jesus breathed his last in this way, he said, surely this man was the son of, of God. So he summons that man who was watching the whole time. This man was supervising Christ's crucifixion. And, and he went to him and asked him to verify that Christ had died. And so that's what the guy did. He verified that Jesus uh, was already dead. It says, when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. So it's it's kind of the official stamp. He's kind of the medical examiner of the day. He's like, yep, I was there. I, I can verify for certain that he died. He certainly died. And so the body was given to Joseph for, for burial under the order of Pilate himself. Now, this shuts the mouths of scoffers and skeptics who would try to say that our Lord Jesus Christ didn't die, but they call it the swoon theory. You know, he fainted and maybe his pulse was really low. And, uh, you know, now remember, he was scourged. He was scourged, you know, beaten with a whip with pizza, pieces of glass and metal and bone. You know, the, the, his, his flesh would have been shredded before he ever touched the cross. And then the soldiers, remember the soldiers mocked him, spat on him, beat him about the head. And then he was crucified. He was already so weak. Remember, someone had to carry the cross. Simon of Cyrene had to carry the cross for him. But they would say, oh, no, no. He fainted, he swooned, and then, you know, that whatever, however heavy that rock was in front of the tomb, somehow Jesus, who was almost dead, but not totally dead, somehow found the strength to roll the tomb away from the inside and then show himself good as new. He, apparently he had miraculous healing powers upon himself that kept him from dying. He did have miraculous healing powers, but he didn't use it to heal himself. So they would say there was no resurrection. He was just a resuscitation. He woke up and he sprang back into action. And so, now if that's the case, there's no Christianity. We're wasting our time. We're still in our sins. But what does our text say? Verified that he died. The Roman government, no less, verified that he died. And Joseph and Nicodemus buried him in the tomb. Verse 46, Mark says, Joseph bought a linen shroud. It really just says a fine piece of linen. 
Uh, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen and shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. You know, so this wasn't just, this wasn't digging a ditch and burying the body. This was a tomb in the side of the rock. And they put a stone that, that one person would have no ability to, to open it back up. Very often they would carve a, a, a disc, a piece of stone in the shape of a disc and roll it in front of the tomb. And it was kind of, it was almost like sealing it. There was no way you could have one person uh, open something that that heavy. And why did he have to be buried this way? Why did Joseph, this respected member of the council, why was he the one that had him buried along with Nicodemus? Uh, among other things, I believe this fulfills the prophecy. Everything goes back to Isaiah 53, it seems like, in the last month of our sermons. But Isaiah 53.9 says, of the suffering servant of the Messiah or the Christ, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb for a short time, and that borrowed tomb was borrowed from a rich man, from Joseph of Arimathea, that member of the council. And so Joseph not only fulfilled the prophecy of Christ found in Isaiah, but he also showed himself publicly to be a disciple of Christ and had his name put down in Scripture, just like Mary Magdalene did, Uh, for all the world to see and provide a very important testimony to the truthfulness, the reality of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So one of the most important things about Christ's burial, and if you're wondering to yourself, why does it matter that he was buried? Couldn't he just die on the cross and then at some point you know, come down from the cross after he died? Uh, but why, is it, why does it matter that he, that he died? Heidelberg Catechism, question 41, says this, Very simply, why was he buried? Good question. Apparently our, the reformers and the people after them wanted us to have a reason for that. Why was he buried? The answer given there is simply, quote, his burial testifies that he really died. It's, this, it's the last stamp. Uh, it's, it's God's way of saying, if anybody ever had a doubt that he died, his burial should settle that beyond all question and doubt. Now in conclusion, I'd like us to see a number of things that we can take from this passage from Christ's burial First, we've already said, see how Jesus saves all kinds of sinners in this text. He saves all kinds. He saved the, the uncleanest of the unclean in Mary Magdalene, this woman who was demon-possessed by seven, seven demons, no less. Uh, he also saves the self-righteous, the legalist, the person of high religious attainment, who, you know, to us, outwardly seems to have it all together, but only who by grace of the grace of God only found to see himself and see his need for the Savior. You know, Joseph is the kind of guy you invite to church, right? He's practically there all. He's probably saved and doesn't know it. He's such a good guy. Not so, just like Nicodemus. But Jesus saved him anyway. The, the, Mary Magdalene, we probably wouldn't think very quickly to take to invite her to church, but Jesus saves her anyway. That he saves Mary Magdalene and Joseph of Arimathea, I think, shows us that the Lord saves all kinds of sinners. And so we should boldly take the gospel to all kinds of sinners. And we should expect to see all kinds of sinners saved. Not all of them. Maybe not even most of the ones you talk to. But we should never be surprised that anyone comes to faith in Christ. William Perkins, uh, often called the father of Puritanism or the father of the English Puritans, suggests two benefits or uses of the of the of Christ's burial for us as believers. He he shows a benefit or things that we are to do or think of in light of that. 
And the first one, he says that Christ's burial, quote, serves to work in us the burial of all of our sins. Christ's burial should serve uh, to, to work in us the burial of all of our sins. Now, why does he say that? Why, where does he possibly get that? We well, get it from Scripture. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, which he cites there, says this. Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, hey, if, if salvation is free and I'm saved by grace, then hey, it doesn't matter how I live, right? I can sin my fill and it's all good in fact. If where sin abounds, grace abounds more, hey, let's make it really gracious. Let's, I want more grace, so I'm going to sin more. And what does Paul say to that? I, I translate, are you nuts? No, he says, no, by no means. God forbid. How can we, listen to what he says, how? How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? In other words, what's he saying? He's like, you're, you don't realize what happened here. You've died to sin if you're with Christ. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And here, here it is. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, I don't have time. That's a whole different sermon right there. But he's saying that if you're in Christ by faith, if you're united to Christ you were united to Christ in everything he did, including his crucifixion, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And if you are united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, you are now dead, whether you know it or not, you are now dead to your sins. And you are what? Alive in Christ. If any man is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. Jesus, does, you know, when you come to Christ, Jesus doesn't just kind of uh, dust you off a little bit and break out the touch-up paint and just, you know, you just had a couple rough edges. You're a new creation. Created in Christ Jesus, Paul says, for good works in Ephesians 2, verse 10. So we were buried with him, with Christ, by what? By baptism, into his death. And because of that, Paul says, you and I should reckon ourselves to be what? Dead to sin, and so we should walk in newness of life in the power of Christ's resurrection. That's, that's what we should get from the tomb, from Christ's burial. That's what we sh- so when you think of Christ, you know, there are no end of things, of benefits and uses, to, I don't know what other word to use, to think about, if you meditate upon and think about what Jesus did. Think about his death. There is cure, balm for your woes and sins and miseries in that. And the same goes for his burial and, of course, his resurrection. The second use, that's the word he uses, uh, that Perkins suggests about the burial of Christ is this. The burial of Christ serves to be a sweet perfume of all of our graves and burials. Think about that. Because Christ died for our sins and was buried, he sanctifies our graves and removes the terrors of death for believers, our Lord not only died and rose again for us, but he was also buried for us as well. Think about it. Jesus was not ashamed not just to become a person like us and come in the, in the, in the form of a servant, which for him, the Lord of glory, was a humiliation we can't even comprehend. He was willing to be, suffer the indignity of the cross and even to be buried. I can't even get your mind wrapped around that. He did that for us so that our burials our graves would not hold terror for us. 
one of the other Puritan writers, I, I couldn't think of who it was, but I'm pretty sure it was my favorite, William or uh, um, Thomas Watson. He says, uh, not of Christ's burial per se, but he says that because of the gospel, believers can rest in our graves as comfortably as we rest on our couches. And we probably don't think that way, but that's what he says. And that's what Christ's burial does for us in his death and resurrection. So Christ, uh, as just as our death means that we are absent from the body and present with the Lord, as Paul says, so the burial of our bodies in the grave is only a precursor to our glorious resurrection on the last day when Christ comes again. I hope this uh, served to at least get a little bit of, of what, what Christ's burial, why it's so important for your faith and even for your life and your encouragement. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace uh, that you have lavished upon us, that you uh, loved us enough to send your Son. We thank you for Christ Jesus, your Son, our Lord, who was willing for our salvation to hum- humble himself and come become a man and come in the form of a servant and even to un- endure the, the agony of the cross, uh, the dying on the cross for our sins, and even enduring burial uh, for us, that we might know that our graves are not the last word. And that uh, we thank you that he rose again on the third day. And we ask that you would give us understanding into these things, that we might uh, consider ourselves, if we're in Christ, that we might consider ourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ, and that we might live like it. We might walk more and more in newness of life. And Lord, we pray, if there's any here this morning that do not yet know you, that are still in their sins, and do not know the peace uh, with you that comes through being made right with you by faith in Christ, that you might open their eyes even today, Give them grace to see their sins for what they are. They might uh, hate them, turn from them, and turn to you by faith in Christ and have life eternal and abundant through him that you might give them salvation that's so free and, and the joy that comes with knowing that you're finally right with God. And we pray that you'd receive all the glory for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.